Good evening or good afternoon. I can, can't always quite remember uh, uh, what six o'clock counts as, but anyhow, good day. Um, I am, as, uh, as ever, Herman Petulis, and I'm joined by the ever-awesome Sarah Gon. As we approach the end of uh, our look at uh, the rule of law in South Africa, what it consists of, whether it's present in South Africa, its hopes, its ambitions, its future, uh, its past. And uh, that is, of course, what the Taking the Stand podcast of the Freedom Advocacy Network has been about these past few weeks. And we are now in the penultimate episode um, to, uh, to look at the final point where we, in our final episode of the series, perhaps we'll look at, give a whole, you know, feedback on the thing. But the long and short of it is that we have now arrived at point eight of what the rule of law is considered to consist of. So to quickly run them through, number one, accessibility, number two, law, not discretion, number three, equality, number four, exercise of power, number five, human rights, number six, dispute resolution, number seven, fair trial, and number eight, compliance with international law. So Sara, let us get down to uh, to the definitional aspect. It's we're treating this a bit like a like a piece of legislation. You get the long title, that's what I just gave, and then you're into the definitions. So definitionally international law, what are we to make of that concept? Okay. Um generally what what perhaps the best example to give of international law is law for example, um, you, you, law that comes out of the United Nations, if not laws, sort of resolutions or the decisions of bodies usually that are aligned to the United Nations. So it could be, it could be medical. It could be related to our obligations under the international under that international labor organization, which we have signed essentially signed up to. So in other words, we cannot um, create legislation that is any legislation that we create that is contrary to the ILO's um, provisions would be considered um, uh, wrong, basically, and we would not uh, a court would not be able to find against a provision of the ILO in in, in a South African court. So that's the best way of, of of generally putting it. There is customary law, and I'll give you, for example, the most probably well known is the. Um, right to indemnify for, uh, visiting foreign heads of state against any action that may be taken against them for any reason, it's usually human rights related, um, but it could be something else. And it, it gives them the protection to attend as in their capacity as the head of state for the purposes and the benefit of, of their own state. And the other thing could be treaties, they could be agreements on climate um, it's it's a wide range, and the and the constitution provides that you that the, the courts of, of South Africa must take into must have to take into account our international law obligations. Um, foreign law, as in the law of other countries, we may consider, which we often do, um, when when courts make decisions on on points on which usually we haven't got well established law, but we, there's no obligation to to find, say, example what America says about an issue, we, we're not obliged to follow American law. 
Yeah, no, I must say uh, that uh, from, I, I remember from my first year law student days, it was always, I was never quite clear what the difference between foreign law and international law is because um, section, what's 39 or 38, I can't remember, section 38 or 9 of, of the South African constitution says exactly that, that you yeah. may take foreign law into account, but you must take international law into account. So foreign law, one can see as, you know, examples of other people doing something. International law is a law that applies to multiple countries, one of them being our own. So uh, exactly as you say, the treaties, usually there's some United Nations component here. Um, and, and perhaps speaking of uh, the United Nations, one can't get away from the fact that there's some politics, like there is politics in the making of national legislation, there's politics involved in the making of international legislation and South Africa's political position in the United Nations or or, or the League of Nations, as it were, it's slightly failed precursor. Um, it's always been a bit tenuous so I, I, or, 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 you know, testy um, to see whether we are in line with it. Of course, since 94, things have been a bit different, but perhaps it would be prudent to ask, historically speaking, looking back to 1994 and before, um, perhaps 1993 with the interim constitution, worse, that, that obligation uh, within the constitution to to, to, to adhere to international law. Would it be fair to say that that was inserted into the constitution because of South Africa's past of, you know, not always uh, um, submitting itself or adhering to these norms of international law? Well, essentially, apartheid would have been your classic contravention of international law. Um, and this is, this is where you, the politics comes in is there are heinous regimes in various parts of the world who who treat their citizens appallingly badly and, and theoretically should receive some of the opprobrium that South Africa received for being an apartheid state. But apartheid was declared a crime against humanity because Russia, together with its supporters, managed to get that resolution passed in the, um, in, the in the UN. So as such, they could suspend. I don't think they ever terminated, but suspended South Africans membership, South Africa's membership of the UN, which was quite a thing when you think that South Africa was one of the founding fathers, so to speak, um, of the UN. So that's where your politics comes in. The reality is, you have to have something as severe as that to attract enough opprobrium to actually be punished in some way for it. Um, but it's actually terribly difficult in reality to punish states for their contraventions of international law, unless somehow you can um, attach some sort of monetary value and sue them for it in, in some other jurisdiction. That's the problem. And to give you a, perhaps a better example of where customary law got overtaken by a United Nations resolution is when uh, Omar al-Bashir came to South Africa for the AU summit some years ago. And the customary law was that he, he, he was entitled to indemnity or to be uh, covered with diplomatic immunity, despite having committed, being charged with committing um, genocide in in Darfur. Now, the the majority opinion on that was that the there was a uh, what do you call it, Security Council resolution that because the Security Council had referred that issue to the uh, International Criminal Court, 
it overrode the customary law. So it gives you a sense of, of, of how both worked. Um, and we were, we are a member of the, the founding member to the criminal court, the, the statute of Rome, as it's called, and it's in terms of that that our obligation arises. It's very difficult for the UN to do anything about a, a country that isn't a member. So that's always the limitation or one of the potential limitations of uh, international law. I must say, it's, it's, in, international law is, is this weird creature because um, in, in usual national legislation, you've got the, the trust uh, political, the, the, the three branches, as it were, of state. You've got the, the, the lawmakers that can gather to make the law. You've got the executive to apply the law. And then you also got this extra component of the judiciary making sure that the law is applied sensibly. And there are these checks and balances. International law is a bit is a bit weak on all of those fronts because the mandate to make the law isn't perhaps as strong, but it's still considered to be binding. The international criminal, uh, you know, executive ideas. Thankfully, there's no no you know supranational executive idea, but it sort of has this obligation on the national executives. Mm. And then you've got these almost international type courts. The problem is that you can either submit or not submit yourself. So that that does make international law a bit weaker and perhaps to add on a little tale to that is that good or bad for liberty and freedom do you think well well it depends uh, one could say it depends on the issue but for example where you have in a state where in a democratic state where you're accountable entirely to your electorate in it is the electorate that determines whether you're in power the fact that uh, decisions can be made for or against you as a, as a government is, 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 is quite powerful and it's it's absolutely binding. Now, if, for example, I gave the example of the sort of political side of the UN. If you have a resolution, let me perhaps give you the example. Um, it, it doesn't exist at the moment, but it, it existed for about 12 years, where, again, the Russians with their allies declared Zionism to be racism. Now, that was, that was, that had, all sorts of political motives. It wasn't about um, anything more glorious than that. And its strength lay not in the fact that much could be done about it, but those who favoured the resolution could then make a, a large sort of issue out of it, a global issue out of it, which which then, of course, had to be, had to be lived with and dealt with, but there was no medium by which a final determination could be made until... The, the UN agreed to withdraw the resolution. So this um, this 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 flimsiness. Um, I mean, it 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 is it, it's exactly as you say. It it could be in the service of liberty, mm. but it can also be quite undermining um, mm. of of the idea of of, of nations. Um, and nation states specifically. But, I mean, I, I do think it's fair of Lord Bingham to include compliance with international law as one of those markers of the rule of law. And that is why the al-Bashir situation was so troubling um, here in South Africa about what almost a decade or so ago when this person accused of war crimes in his own, in, in, in his own country came to South Africa South Africa being a signed up member to the relevant authorities looking to prosecute this man and then the government of President Zuma choosing not to comply. That was that was why I think the rule of law was so tested there. Well, you see, and, and it, and, and it was... 
criminal court required that he be arrested in signatory states, and we didn't arrest him. We let, we somehow allowed him to come through and go out again. And that did not do South Africa's reputation any good. We suffered badly from that. There wasn't much that the court chose to do, even if it could, it, it probably can levy a fine, which isn't very helpful. Um, but it was basically saying, you know, there, there are no, you, you can't pick and choose, you can't pick and choose international your, who you will arrest when you're ordered to do so and who you will not arrest when, despite being ordered to do so. So it has, it has very often mostly a very strong uh, political issue. Where there can be of benefit, for example, take the International Labour Organization. Now, I may not agree with it all, but it all basically looks to the protection of employees, that employees should not be exploited or, or worse. Um, the fact that to some extent individual states may choose slightly different paths to what is laid down in the international uh, by the International Labour Organization, provided it's not way out of the bounds of it, it generally has benefits. So you sign up to the ILO, it, it means you are going to undertake to provide the protections at least as provided for by the ILO. So it, it it's really is one hand, the other hand depends on the circumstances. So with um with the with the you know looking back at history and seeing South Africa falling foul especially during apartheid of international law norms and considering the past 20 or 30 so years where it seems to me at least that we've been more in line with international law but not perfectly so especially with that terrible business of letting a war criminal go. What do you think is the state of affairs as of 2021 and looking ahead, perhaps specifically taking into account domestic policies like expropriation without compensation? Because we look at the UN Charter of Human Rights, you you, you look at, you know, international treaties, um, uh, the Free Africa Trade Agreement, and and you can't help wonder th whether this collision course of domestic policy versus international law commitments, whether that wouldn't cancel one or the other out, both to the detriment of citizens and freedom. Yeah. Well, essentially, um, when you have, I think you can safely say, when you have a government that is seeking to limit rights, and expropriation without property is, without sorry, without compensation is a limitation of of property rights. Um, now, governments can take that route if they choose to adopt a more socialist approach to the governance of of their countries. But the point is, it's usually a sign that if that right's going, other rights are going to go, and we're starting to see that. And that's when. You run the, the country runs a risk of, of contravening international law, but the desperation of the political body in charge is, is usually going to override. In other words, they're going to carry on going, and they would probably have to commit genocide to really get the attention of the, of the international community. What they will get, for example, where you limit rights, is you won't economically, you, you, the chances are your economic benefits will gradually move away people other countries will not invest so it'll be more a, a sort of practical response by individual countries than it will be by the by the international community because 
the one thing the international community, the international international law can't dictate is what sort of, what type of uh, political system you have and what theories underpin it. Yeah, no, I must say, so it's on, on many of these issues that we've been looking at over the past few weeks, you can either score South Africa a clear pass or a clear fail. The international law one is a, is a strange one because it's just, it, it's like we're, we, we, it's it's like we're going for the sick test or the supplementary exam. Uh, we're not blatantly failing it, but we're 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 not passing either. Um, and that's perhaps something to to look at. And 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 something that I think my citizens might sometimes underestimate is there's no I think knight in shining armor coming over the horizon of foreign lands to save South Africa, but that does not mean international pressure is meaningless. That does not mean international law is meaningless. That does not mean making your case internationally on the basis of international law is meaningless. So perhaps a parting shot question. Do you see a route that a citizen, someone supporting the work of the Freedom Advocacy Network, a fan of fan, as it were, do you think that there's some way where the idea of international law might not just be some abstraction somewhere, but might become a tool to advance freedom uh, here in South Africa? Well, um, I'm so just trying to think of the example, but I, I know there have been a, a couple of bodies of citizen based bodies um, that have threatened to go to international forums over issues like uh, expropriation without com uh, compensation. Um, even uh, although this is a real stretch, you know, the, the, the murder of, of farmers, uh, trying to categorize it as a genocide to send to the uh, International uh, Criminal Court. Now, they may, they may sound a bit, sort of, a bit of a stretch, but those, those, those fora are open. Um, if, 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 if for a for a an organisation, it doesn't have to be just a country, but for an organisation to try and get some support effectively through a body like that, that they're not getting making headway with uh, locally. But it's 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 a fairly rare and difficult thing to. It's a difficult thing to do. It's it's costly. It's time consuming. Um, and you you do take a you do you do take a hell of a chance, but certainly that's a, that's a sort of a perception of, of of rights being abused. That if you can couch it in in, in the terms covered by bodies like the court, um, you could take it there. Yeah. So to uh, to uh, end off with one of one of you know I think a, a useful soundbite that 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 have uh, come to mean something for me is that rights and freedom. Um, and pinned by those rights, um, only as strong as citizens are willing to make them. So whether it's international law, domestic law, or just plain old good politics, what I can say, and with that I end this, uh, this, this episode, what we all should agree on is that justice should be about freedom, and your freedom is worth fighting for. Thank you very much, Sarah, and everyone at home. We'll see you next week.